Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, June 11th, and we're talking about Sentinel One. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's super sloppy soldier of scouring, surprisingly succinct S1s, Brian Paroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, happy Friday to you. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. And I got to say, it's it's nice to be doing the show with you again. You know, like listeners may have noticed there was there was a little gap there where, you know, I did some shows with Anand and it was really fun to bring his framework and his criteria in. But I always love talking about companies with you. But for, for folks that might say, you know, oh, Brian and Dylan haven't talked in a little while. Not true. We, we briefly got to see each other in person, which was absolutely delightful. And I will make that trade uh, any day. Yeah, last week I got to do a fun little tour of the East Coast uh, that I usually do every year. Haven't been able to do that for two years for obvious reasons. But yes, as part of that, I did get to go out to lunch with you as part of that. So yeah, awesome to see you in person. Super fun, and you know, it was uh, it was the first time I think I've seen a fool in person in like a year and a half, and so to be able to sit outside and grab lunch with you was was just such a treat. Uh, after doing all this stuff over Zoom, back on Zoom today, but you know what? It, it's okay. We're gonna have fun. We're gonna talk about another S one. Uh, they just keep rolling in, Brian, and this one is gonna sound a little familiar to fools that follow the cybersecurity and cloud space. Um, the company name is Sentinel One, and it looks an awful lot like a company that we have talked about and appears in some full services, CrowdStrike. Very similar to CrowdStrike when you read through what this company does. Uh, they recently filed their S1. Their proposed ticker is the letter S. So kudos to them for grabbing <laughs> a single ticker, a single letter ticker. I think uh, it wasn't all that long ago that that ticker used to belong to Sprint, but that was maybe years and years ago. But yes, when uh, S1 like this comes out, it means that they are looking to come public and raise money. While we don't know a lot of information about the pricing, how much they're going to raise, what they're using the funds for, we do get enough to give us information about whether or not we're interested in giving this business a further look. Yeah. And in this case, a uh, company was valued at about $3 billion uh, not too long ago. So, you know, it was about November of 2020. You figure they're probably going to be going public north of that. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to be deep in the double digits or anything like that. So you're, you're looking at solidly probably a mid-cap company um, uh, that, that we'll be looking at. Uh, but in terms of the information we do know, that's where we're going to be spending most of our, our focus for the show. Uh, the mission for this company uh, to keep the world running, which which sounds simple and uh, almost almost wholesome, really. But when you think about it, you know, cybersecurity. The idea is no news is good news. You know, if you're not running into any issues, Brian, if you're not having any problems, if everything's running smoothly, that means that the system is working the way it is supposed to be working. That's the sad thing about cybersecurity. If if it's doing its job perfectly, you don't know it's there. It's almost like a linebacker, right? Linebackers in the NFL, you only know about them when they do something wrong. You only hear about them when something gets screwed up. With cybersecurity, it's only in the news when there's some kind of massive attack. Now, that's not good for, obviously, humanity, but that is just a constant calling card that companies like uh, Sentinel One get with, hey, you need our services. This is why. Yeah. In the S1, they go through and they kind of explain the dynamics of cybersecurity. And one of the things that they point out is, you know, the, the cyber criminals only need to be right once. 
And as an organization, you only need to be wrong once. I play a lot of soccer uh, in my free time. I'm excited to start doing that again uh, in D.C. now that things are opening up a little bit. And it reminds me an awful lot of being a goalkeeper. Because you can play a great game. You have a shutout going for three quarters of the game. But if you give up two goals in the last quarter, it doesn't matter. You know, if it, It's just the, the way it works. And, and organizations have to have the same approach when it comes to cybersecurity. So do the firms that wind up supplying them. Um, and, and really, Brian, I mean, the stakes are only getting bigger and bigger in this space. You feel, you feel like you see a news story about it almost every week. And with, uh, with workers moving to uh, remote work and the rise of the cloud, the rise of more and more internet-connected devices, the demand for this kind of uh, service is only going to grow in time. So if a company uh, such as Sentinel One can carve out a name for itself, the growth potential of this business is almost unlimited. Within the cybersecurity space, they are specifically focused on what we call endpoint cybersecurity. And the more expanded version of their mission statement gives you a little bit of a sense of that. It's to keep the world running by protecting and securing the core pillars of modern infrastructure, the data and the systems that store, process, and share information. Uh, It's an endless mission as attackers evolve rapidly in their quest to disrupt operations, breach data, turn profit, and inflict damage. And for folks that maybe aren't familiar, Endpoint basically any device that's going to be connected to your network. And so you can think about that as uh, your your laptop. You can also think about it as servers. Really, really anything that is playing a role in either how people are directly interacting with information or how that information is being processed for an organization. Yeah. And if you look historically how we've handled cybersecurity, much of it was done uh, by humans, uh, humans themselves. It was all on premise. There was a team on staff that kind of handled any issue when it cropped up. Obviously, our shift to the cloud has significantly changed that, and we're all using so many more devices that there's so many places uh, for cybersecurity criminals to go after. What Sentinel One likes to say is it's the quote unquote world's first uh, purpose built. AI-powered extended detection and response uh, system. So their goal is to have this system make almost everything about cybersecurity uh, uh, autonomous so that once it's installed, it's always working, it's always running, and you don't have to think about it. And I'll say, Brian, as a human, as an end user here, that makes a ton of sense to me. Because how many how many times have you had, you know, an update forced on you and you're like, okay, like, you know, I, I'll deal with that later. You know, or, <laughs> you know, you talk about the distributed workforce and people being at home. The, the control that organizations have over devices, the way they're used, the software that's on those devices, all that type of stuff goes down. And so this is something that directly addresses that problem, which we're seeing more and more of because people are at home. But really, this is something that the industry has been trending towards over time. And this is a purpose-built business for the world that we're in right now, as opposed to legacy players that are kind of bringing their current uh, stuff present with you know the, the, the technology that everyone's on. I want to read a little bit uh, for an in-depth background on what they do from the S1, because they spent some time crafting this language. It's probably going to be a little jargon heavy, but it's going to do a better job explaining it than I think either of us can trying to summarize, Brian. So they say, our platform ingests, correlates, and queries petabytes of structured and unstructured data from a myriad of disparate external and internal sources in real time. We build rich context by constructing a dynamic representation of data across an organization. As a result, our AI models are highly accurate, actionable, and autonomous. Our distributed AI models run both locally on every endpoint and every cloud workload, as well as on our cloud platform. And there you hear it, right? It's it's within each device, but it's also on the cloud platform. And Brian, when, when I hear 
all of that coming in here. Um, it, it's a lot to process, but what I what I what I think it does a good job of getting to the core of is um, really a lot of cybersecurity work is pattern recognition and realizing that there is a certain cadence to the way attacks are done, being able to recognize them before damage is done, and being able to shore up the network. I am generally of the mind that AI is probably going to do a pretty good job of it as it's trained to do so. I think that that's pretty clear. That's a pretty fair assumption to to make. And that is kind of the core thesis behind this company is it does have that AI to not only uh, monitor all of your endpoints and protect them uh, in real time, but importantly, just like with CrowdStrike, and we're going to keep making this comparison over and over again, it also fights back uh, against because uh, one of the points that this company makes is that these aren't necessarily just uh, cybersecurity criminals that are operating by themselves. Uh, they might be government backed with uh, incredible access to incredible technology at their own disposal. So you really need to have the best and uh, the best technology out there in order to be able to defend yourselves from these kind of attacks. Yeah, the way they summarize it is we want machines to be fighting machines. <laughs> you know, you want it to be a fair fight, uh, particularly because being wrong once uh, can be so devastating for a business. Um, to, to bring it back to something that maybe we're a little bit more familiar with, because I know we, we were kind of straying into the depths of our technical knowledge there, Brian. Um, one thing that I think it's easy to get excited about with this business, just kind of looking at the back of the baseball card here, we have a founder-led company, and it's a SaaS cloud-first business, which we've seen a lot of success with here at The Fool. This company was founded in 2013, so it's only eight years old. It doesn't have any legacy products that are holding it down. It was a cloud-first company because the cloud was very established uh, at that time. It was founded by a, a few co-founders that basically believed that there was holes missing in the security uh, systems of the day. Again, very similar to CrowdStrike where they say uh, legacy systems are not keeping up. We need to build a cloud-first product that secures all endpoint uh, devices. The good news is when you look at this management team, uh, the, the founder, uh, Tomer Weingarten, I'm going with uh, for the pronunciation, uh, he's still in charge uh, today. So this is still a founder-led company. That's always a big plus in my book. It is. And, and you get a much better perspective on the company when it's founder-led. You get to read the founder letter you know, in the S1 and see the context that uh, they, they layer into the business and just generally what their vision looks like. I think that's always helpful. Um, we said the magic words earlier, Brian, of SaaS. And so people kind of probably know where this is going in terms of business model. Um, no surprises. It's a multi-tiered software as a service company. And we're looking at a subscription model in terms of how clients pay. This company says that it has three core uh, tiers uh, called uh, Singularity Core at the very bottom level, Singularity Control at the mid-tier level, and Singularity Complete, which is its highest-end uh, enterprise-grade uh, product. Customers can come in and they can subscribe to any of them. Uh, they typically pay on a per seat, uh, per device, per month basis. And it really depends on how much, uh, how much control they want to hand over to this company and how much protection that they do need. Obviously, Sentinel One does want to bring these people in and then gradually over time upsell them. And it does have the numbers to show that it is doing just that. Yeah. And I think it's kind of fun, Singularity being the, uh, the name of their product, you know, for, for the AI fans out there. No surprises when you look over at the financials for this business. Looks an awful lot like a software company. Super high growth, pretty decent margins. Um, and importantly, Brian, we have a look at a net revenue retention rate number which we always love to see. When it comes to companies like this, it can be really hard to separate them from each other. 
for that perspective, what do we say over and over again? This sounds great. Prove it. Yeah, show Prove us the numbers. <laughs> show us with the numbers that not only are you uh, doing what you say you're going to do, but that customers are buying it. On that front, this company is off to a really good start. In the last fiscal year, which ended in January, so it was basically the fiscal, the, the actual year 2020, they call it fiscal year 2021, uh, revenue was $93 million, and that was up over 100% uh, over the prior year. Interestingly enough, while this business is only eight years old, it already has a pretty substantial uh, international business. Uh, domestic sales are 72% of sales, so that's North America, but international is already 28% of sales. So that shows that this concept does translate across borders. Gross margin was a little bit disappointing, if I'm going to be honest. The gross margin last year was 57%. That was down a couple of percent, I'm guessing because they needed to service all of that uh, sudden demand, but that's not as high as we see with some other companies. One tricky thing, though, is that this company is losing boatloads uh, of money. Uh, operating loss in, uh, in fiscal 2021 was $115 million. As a reminder, revenue was $93 million. So this company lost more money than it pulled in in revenue. A lot of that is because it is scaling quickly and is spending heavily on sales and marketing as well as research and development. But that just shows you kind of how small and how early this company is coming public. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that revenue base alone, I think, really tells you a lot because, Brian, I, I can't really think of too many companies that we've talked about that are below $100 million in trailing revenue. Granted, we're talking about triple digit year over year growth. So, you know, we're, I think we're going to continue to see that climb in the years that follow. Um, but it is good to take take a moment. We we compared it to CrowdStrike plenty of times um, with the financials uh, to to compare those two. And what you see with a company like CrowdStrike is it's about ten times the revenue base. The gross margins are considerably higher. In in the case of CrowdStrike, they're about seventy four percent gross margins. Uh, and CrowdStrike's about a fifty billion dollar business with with that financial space. Uh, we talked about it before. This is probably going to wind up debuting somewhere in the single digit billions. So not crazy, but um, you immediately look at that gross margin comparison and you say, "Huh, I, I kind of wonder why they aren't able to work uh, at a similar level of profitability as their much larger counterpart." You hate to compare them to CrowdStrike on a financial because you kind of think that they're different businesses. But one thing that's worth pointing out is, given the enormous difference in revenue between those two companies that we just said, you might think, wow, CrowdStrike must be much older. CrowdStrike was founded in 2011. So just two years prior to Sentinel One being, uh, being founded. So that should speak a little bit about how extreme CrowdStrike's growth has been. Yeah, it's it's been absolutely remarkable, uh, and it's a tough comp, right? I mean, it's just that we're we're comparing, uh, you know, one business to a a category definer in a lot of ways, and so it's it's always going to be difficult. Uh, one thing I will say, you know, if, if if you're looking for positive signs in the financials, uh, the net revenue retention rate for this number uh, for this company 124 percent, which is pretty darn strong. I think a lot of businesses in the SaaS and the cloud space would be thrilled to post a number like that. For sure. And as a reminder, that is the retention number. That is the one that includes churn. The company also also reports a gross number, uh, which is just same customer from year to year. And that number is 97%. So when this company acquires a customer, they tend to be very loyal and ramp their spending over time. And speaking of customers, uh, the company has already attracted over 4,700 of them in total. That figure was up almost 80% uh, over the prior year. And it does include some big name com uh, customers, uh, JetBlue, 
Autodesk, Estee Lauder, TJI Fridays, Ashton Martin. So this company is doing a good job of holding its own in the space. Yeah. And that's another thing we generally look for, particularly in spaces where we just know that the technical depth of what the company does is a little bit beyond uh, what we know. That social proof is huge. And customers seem pretty satisfied. They quote a 97% customer satisfaction rate. That's strong. You pair that with what we see in terms of retention numbers. That all puts together a pretty nice story. One other thing that I think kind of popped out to me looking at their their financials is over on the balance sheet as of uh, January 31st of this year, 395 million in cash, 19 million in long-term debt. That is a very, very healthy net cash position for them. Sure is. But if they're losing money that rapidly, they're going to need it. So I understand why this company is looking to go public now to raise while the sun uh, is shining. And again, their, so their net loss uh, last year was $117 million. That did include a whole bunch of stock-based compensation. I'm sure that stock-based compensation number is only going to grow after this company comes public. But if you're just looking at cash flow on a free cash flow basis, the net, uh, the free cash flow number uh, over the last fiscal year was negative 72 million. So uh, while it does have a very strong balance sheet for now, it's definitely going to need to raise capital at some point, especially if it continues to reinvest in itself so aggressively. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that'll be kind of interesting to watch with them, we mentioned how you know one of their uh, main competitors has much more impressive gross margins. Uh, that 57% number we were talking about before, it's actually down from where they were in 2019. And so, you know, like long term, you'd, you'd kind of expect them to enjoy operating leverage a little bit um, and see that expand. Um, you know, Growth can do very funny things to your margins uh, short term, but you'd hope that there's some expansion opportunity for them long term there. That would certainly help out with the cash burn, Brian. That's the hope, Dylan. <laughs> you know, one, one can dream. Um, I, I think we we touched on a, a large part of, I think, the, what we'd want to do with, with customers here. But um, you, you mentioned the kind of the headline folks that they're partnered up with. One of the things that was encouraging for me looking at their customer base, over 200 customers with an ARR of over 100K, which is double from where they were the previous year. Um, we like to see diversification there. And obviously, the more people you have paying into those higher level accounts, the better it's going to be for the business. Enterprise Enterprise-grade customers are where companies like this make most of their money, and that is the case here. The company did point out, again, it has uh, 4,700 customers in total, but enterprise customers are, are about two-thirds of total revenue. It is nice to see that they are having success at landing them, again, even considering they're going up in the space against a company like CrowdStrike. Uh, turning over to opportunities and, and just really like what you see going forward over the next three, five, ten years with a business like this, no surprise in terms of tailwinds. We've touched on a couple of them already. I mean, the cloud is absolutely huge. And really, I mean, the, the way that we are increasingly reliant on technology is a major driver for this business going forward. Um, every single device is both a point of contact uh, and, and a way for people to interact with each other. It's also a vulnerability. And so like the, the more expansive we get with that, the larger the opportunity for a company that is specializing in cybersecurity. Also, larger opportunity for cyber criminals. And it's basically going to work in lockstep uh, for the two of them. And what, what I thought was kind of interesting in the prospectus is they, uh, they quoted that cybercrime is a massive $6 trillion business. Brian, I don't think I could have pulled that number out myself. I don't know where they got it from, uh, you know, in, in terms of put piecing that together in terms of cyber attacks, but that's a huge, huge number. 
Yes, and it just shows you why cyber cybersecurity, the need for cybersecurity products is going to be so big because there is a massive, massive incentive for cybersecurity to take place. Yeah, and, and basically as a business, you have to look at it like you would be making an insurance payment. You know, you are you are consistently paying a known amount over time to avoid something catastrophic happening that winds up coming with a really big dollar figure attached to it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and given that big of the pie, it's it's not surprising that the demand for cybersecurity products and tools is growing so rapidly. When you look at the company's total addressable market opportunity that it lays out uh, in its S1, uh, no, no surprise here, it's huge. The company pegs that number currently uh, is going to grow to about $40 billion by 2024. Uh, as a reminder, this company's revenue over the last year uh, over the last year is just over, uh, just about $100 million range. So if this business does not work out, it's not because the TAM isn't there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, even if you start itemizing and looking at some of the sub-markets that comprise that $40 billion. So corporate endpoint security, they say it's a $10 billion market in 2021. Cybersecurity analytics, intelligence, response, and orchestration, a $13 billion business in 2021. Uh, and the operations management part, $6 billion business in 2021. All of those have a ton of growth in front of them. Um and you know, to to back it up again, you know, you mentioned 100 million. The uh, leader in the space with CrowdStrike, uh, about a billion, right, in top line revenue. So the so the two of them combined are barely scratching the surface of the current opportunity, let alone where this industry is going. And this is not going to be a winner take everything market. It could be a winner take most market, but. Look, that's a that should be an attractive thing for investors. The the market for cybersecurity products is so big and so huge that there can definitely be multiple winners in the space. One of the things I always do when I'm when I'm looking at an industry that you know I, I have a little bit of background in but could certainly use some help is looking at what folks who research the space follow it over time say about the industry and the breakout. And really one of the best places to go for that is Gartner. They do wonderful research. And so one of the first things when I when I realized we we're gonna be doing the show was like, all right, wh- what does Gartner have to say with their magic quadrant about cybersecurity and, and specifically here, endpoint protection platforms. We have the grid um, for, for folks that are familiar. Uh, you know, you have your ability to execute, you have the completeness of the vision for the companies uh, in the industry. And basically, we're looking in that top right quadrant, which they identify as the leaders in the space. Um, CrowdStrike and Microsoft are really kind of the go-to leaders as Gartner identifies them. Uh, Trend Micro, a distant third, and then Sentinel-1 coming in there fourth. Um, I, I think that Sentinel One, Brian, probably has an industry shaping uh, position. I wouldn't say it's industry leading. There are a lot of companies behind them, but there are several big companies in front of them. Which is funny because if you go to their website, they pound the table on this that we are a leader in the market space, according to Gartner. And it's pretty clear that if you look at their customers, their customers really like the products that they, they are selling. Uh, their retention rates are high, their customer reviews are high. And again, uh, Gartner has called them out as one of the leaders. But if you're going by this table, there's no doubt that while they're doing a great job, they are still trailing both Microsoft and CrowdStrike on the on the on the magic quadrant. Yeah, and, and what I think is interesting about that, you made such a great point before about CrowdStrike not really being that much older as a company, and yet look at where they are, you know, in terms of revenue base, in terms of industry standing. Um, and so, you know, for, for two companies that have kind of come out and tried to do something very similar around the same time, it, it seems like Sentinel-1 is a little bit more of the Pepsi to the Coke. 
I think that that is a pretty fair uh, as, as a statement to make. Yeah, and, and you see it even with the way that they advertise themselves. I mean, they know on their own site that they have to convince people to move past legacy players and names that might be a little bit more familiar in consumer and decision maker minds. Right on their website, when you're trying to check out the product, they have pages devoted to each of their competitors. And you can literally say, compare us to CrowdStrike, compare us to Microsoft, compare us to McAfee. That just shows that obviously when customers are shopping, these are the kind of questions that the business can get. And it makes sense uh, given how pervasive CrowdStrike and Microsoft are. Yeah. And, and personally, I love to see that. You know, I, I like that they are willing to stack right there and say, like, this this is, you know, who we are and this is how we compare to, to the major players. Um, I think it's also indicative, you know, they, they got to educate the market a little bit on who they are and what they're offering relative to either the legacy players that have been doing this a while or people that are kind of in that next gen phase, but maybe are a little bit bigger, have a little bit more name recognition. And that is likely to be one of the reasons that they are spending so aggressively on sales and marketing right now. They know that they have a huge challenge ahead of them to convince the market to, to buy from them as opposed to CrowdStrike and to Microsoft. So it makes sense to me why this company is raising capital and why it is spending so aggressively to expand its footprint right now. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the biggest risks for this business is that the competition is strong. And if you're talking pure players, you know, you have, you have, CrowdStrike in there, you know, it's like cybersecurity focused, really, right? Um, and they're already 10 times the revenue base. And the other top right in that magic quadrant is Microsoft. <laughs> it's one of, the, one of the biggest companies in the world, right? Uh, and so you're coming in here as uh, a smaller company in, in a lot of ways that offers you the ability to be more nimble, um, be a little bit more focused on where the industry is going. But um, you've got to have a pretty darn good product to convince people to move away from the legacy players and from these other deeper pocketed uh, leaders in the industry. The other thing I think, Brian, is this space, and this is kind of table stakes for all the companies in here, this industry is huge when it comes to reputational risk. If there are any cracks in the armor whatsoever, um, it could be really, really tough for a business to come back from. Bingo. If a breach gets through and this company is somehow found to be responsible, that would really damage this company's uh, reputation uh, in the industry and seriously hamper this company's ability to grow. To, to grow. Uh, so far, so good there. And just one comment that I want to make about the, the competition. Yes, they, they have clearly uh, some huge competition in, in the space. But as a reminder, this company just doubled its revenue uh, over, the, over the past year. So it's not like that competition suddenly appeared. They've been competing against those guys the entire way up, and they've clearly grown rapidly ever since. That means that something about this company is standing out to a certain subject, subject of customers. Customers. So, Brian, when you put it all together, what do you see when you look at this company? Is is, is something that you think um, is is an investable idea? Something that you're excited about? Is a watch list stock? Is it something you're staying away from? Well, let's do a quick review. Uh, I think there are some things here to for investors to like. Uh, I personally like that the company is uh, is mission driven. Uh, I like that it's growing its top line over a hundred percent annually. I like that it's a SaaS based business. It has uh, signs of uh, optionality into it, and it can roll out uh, more products over time to upsell its customers. I like that it's founder led. Uh, it gets great reviews on Glassdoor. Uh, it has a huge uh, huge total addressable market opportunity. And I also really like that this company is coming public at will, what likely will be, let's call it a $5 billion uh, valuation, 
it's 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 not going to come back come public at a 20 30 50 billion uh a dollar valuation uh so if if this company executes i could see it being a multibagger what I don't like about this company is that it's um, it's low gross margin. Its gross margin is not near where its competitors are. Uh, hopefully that will become. Uh, hopefully that will grow over the time as the company continues to scale. I really don't like that this company is essentially allergic to profits. I mean, it is really setting fire to capital at a rapid rapid uh, rate. Uh, the inside ownership here is not as high as I would have assumed it would be, given that its founder led uh, prior to the IPO. The CEO only owns about four percent of the business. Insiders as a group own about six percent. That's obviously going to be diluted as part of the IPO. That's not as high as I was really uh, expecting. The big problem that I have, though, is that there was no, really no wow moment when I was reading through this. Like nothing about this business really jumped out at me and grabbed me and says I have to own this uh, on day one. So I'm glad I know about this business. But if anything, this just heightened my resolve for investing in CrowdStrike. <laughs> I think it can be hard, and 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 that's kind of where I landed with this too. Where, um, you know, I I only know this space so well, and everything that I'm doing is stacking this business against a company that I'm already a little bit more familiar with. And by most measures, it seems like CrowdStrike's the better business. And so if, if I'm going to you know, take the risk of investing a little bit outside of my, my core competency um, and where I really feel technically strong, I would rather do it with a company that seems like the industry leader and has the better financials. Uh, and, and so I think the investment case is a little tough for me. To your point, though, Brian, you know it, it's a mid-cap company that, if if it executes, probably looks an awful lot like a multi-bagger. Whereas, you know, CrowdStrike's a fifty billion dollar business at this point, and doubling at that size, it, the numbers are just bigger. You know. Yes, uh, for sure. If I was to be interested, in, and one other knock I have against this company, and it's nothing to do with this company's fault, is uh, it's focused on endpoint security. I personally already own CrowdStrike. If I was to, if I was interested in investing in the space uh, uh, some more, I would probably go with a company like Nobefore, what we talked about previously on the show, which is approaching cybersecurity from the we train people to be less vulnerable uh, to, to clickbaiting. That is a concept that I can understand and I can get behind, and that's that's not competing with CrowdStrike at, at all. So that's just more of uh, that's one reason why I'm probably not going to buy this business is I already have this part of my portfolio filled out. That makes sense. I, I totally get that, and I don't think um, you know we we talked about it, but I, I don't think that there's one winner in this market. But when there is someone who is uh, so much larger already and and generally viewed as you know the industry leader, it does become a little bit tougher, and you know. Uh, you, you don't have to invest in everything. You want things to be as easy as possible. For me, it's there are a couple more things that need to go right here for them as a company. What I will say, though, is cybersecurity is a big, hairy problem, and companies are willing to pay up for other companies that solve big, hairy problems for them. So there's no shortage of opportunity and tailwinds, uh, a lot to like. And certainly for me, a business I'll be watching even if I'm not buying. Sure. I totally agree with you there. And this company could prove basically both of us wrong and continue growing at a triple digit rate, continue taking market share, get the gross margin higher, clean up the financials and become a phenomenal investment. Like That is an entirely plausible thing that can happen. The good news is we don't have to swing on day one. We can watch it over time and see, is it taking market share from CrowdStrike? Uh, is it growing uh, anyway? If that's the case, I'd be happy to re revisit this company in six months, a year and give it a fresh look. Yeah. I think that the telltale signs for me are going to be, can they keep 
growing because that, that revenue base is so small. They're, they're going to have to keep posting pretty big growth uh, to sustain um, the, the multiples that they're going to get. And do we start to see margin expansion? And if we start seeing that, it becomes a much more interesting investable idea for me. Totally agree. Um, Brian, a treat as always to be back on the show with you. Uh, so much fun to be chatting stocks. And hey, we'll do it again next week. Sounds like a plan, Dylan. <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. It's no buyer selling thing based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, we'll on. Cool.